Welcome to Crisis to Comeback, your Western Colorado climate action podcast. Each episode addresses climate change in Western Colorado with a focus on Delta County. This season of Crisis to Come Back, you'll hear interviews and conversations from local voices in our community, government, renowned scientists, and experts in our Western climate. This podcast was made possible in part by the West Elk Community Fund and Citizens for a Healthy Community. I'm your host, Corey Stanton, and this episode features a conversation with Ben Katz, Public Lands Program Director for the Western Slope Conservation Center, WSCC for short. Ben moved to Paonia, Colorado on Earth Day in 2019, and he's been in this public lands position ever since. Here is Ben's perspective on how climate is affecting public lands in the North Fork Valley and regionally on the Western Slope. As many people locally have probably observed, our public lands are hotter and drier you know, than they've been historically. Um, and that's backed up by science from historic temperature recordings to present. You know, we had an interesting presentation from someone two years ago who was talking about our watershed and how, you know, precipitation and temperature and how that's interacting, not only on public lands, but in our watershed in general. And it seems as if uh, the precipitation levels haven't changed too much, that we're getting about the same amount of rain as we've gotten historically, but things are still drier. Um, and because they're drier, our plants and animals need more water. The water that rains gets soaked up into the soil much quicker. And also a lot more of it is evapotranspiring into the atmosphere. So less of it is making it downstream. Um, and because of that too, you know, because of the conditions we're seeing wildlife habitats change, um, you know, historic range of things like pikas, which are these alpine small little mammals that really live in the alpine area, they're losing habitat because they can only go so high. So as they need some cooler temperatures, they're getting restricted on how far down they can go in elevation and they're just getting, are getting restricted there. So we're certainly seeing significant impacts locally and regionally from climate change. Pikas? Pikas. <laughs> I've never heard of this animal before. I'll have to look it up. I bet you've probably seen some or, are, heard, or heard them. What do they look like? They're like little squirrels kind of, but like short, shorter tails. Um, they're about, I don't know, maybe six to eight inches long. They're these small, like bushy creatures, animals. Okay. Like squirrels are kind of chipmunk looking. Chipmunky. Or... Okay. Yeah. Okay. Pikas. Pikas. All right. I'll look look it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of wildlife, is there anything else that you could touch on? Based on some of the data that I've seen, and obviously there are several herds, both of elk and mule deer around, which are the two big game species that get a lot of attention. Locally, the elk seem to be declining uh, pretty significantly in their population. Mule deer seem to be doing a little bit better. There's a slight decline, but generally they're doing a little bit better. I think from climate, there are probably a number of factors. You know, their browse is likely changing. So like what they can eat, there are some really sensitive times for them during the winter, you know, their calving seasons that are really, really critical for, for them to have elk in particular, are these like large landscapes that are um, unfragmented, meaning like they don't have a lot of roads or trails going through them, or they just have these large areas where they can generally feel protected to have their young and for their young to survive. You know, we 
see their habitat change depending on the snow year. We're um, seeing obviously less snow over the last few years. This last winter is kind of has been an exception to that because we had a really heavy snow. And with the really heavy snow, we saw their habitat get pretty severely diminished um, during that time. And that can have really significant impacts on the elk population. Um, it can have really significant impacts on where we recreate and um, and how we're recreating because those can have really big impacts. You don't usually want to startle an elk or uh, scare them or make them move too much. Um, and so recreation has a big impact on elk species. Um, and that's been documented also in some studies. And so that can have a big impact. And also, you know, they migrate, they move up in the high country in the summer to kind of escape the heat. And then they migrate down into the valley bottoms in the winter. Um, and that migration happens on an annual basis. And so that migration pattern is changing. Locally, we're also using collaring data. We're learning a lot more than we ever have. A lot of the data that we've had in the past has been kind of anecdotal. Um, you know, there have been some significant studies, but it's also been people saying, oh, I used to have elk on my property and now I don't. Um, and that was how we based a lot of our information was just anecdotally what people were seeing. And that's still happening. There is some good collaring data and studies happening that's giving us some better information on what are the areas that are really critical and how can we make sure that those areas kind of remain protected for those species. And in a similar um, sense, it's the same for mule deer. You know, mule deer have their own separate areas that are really critical and winter is usually the toughest time. Are you and, saying collaring, like a collar, is that like has something to do with a tag? Yeah, a collar, meaning like um, a GPS collar okay. that they put around the animals and then they can track them remotely. And I'm not an expert, so I don't know exactly how this works, but the idea is they will trap them, put a collar on them and then kind of release them and then they can track their movements. And if you have a, enough of the, you know, they're not collaring the whole herd, but sure. like a couple and they get a good idea how they're moving throughout the, the area. And then having that information, we can then figure out what changes over time. Mm -hmm. And so that's studies that like Colorado Parks and Wildlife and others are doing, you know, the um, certainly Western Colorado uh, University is, is working on. So it's cool. interesting. I feel like big game gets a lot of attention, which is great and well-deserved, but there are other species too, you know, like threatened and endangered species locally you know, pinion jay is maybe a good example, and I'm not um, an expert on this, but the pinion seed is their main primary food source. And as the climate, we're seeing significant changes to this pinion juniper forest that's pretty prevalent around the North Fork, that's having an impact on pinion jay. And so it's things like that. A lot of it that we don't really know in great detail, that we're still trying to figure out what exactly is happening. And that is even more of a reason why we should for the areas that we know are really critical for species like pinion jay or like elk, we should be really thoughtful and consider about what's happening in those areas and allow them to be places that these species can know that they have so that they remain viable. Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of the work that we're doing at WSCC when we advocate for protections for landscapes in land management plans like the Grand Mesa Uncompahgre and Gunnison National Forest Plan or the Uncompahgre Resource Management Plan. We're advocating for protection of landscapes because they're special, but because they're also special and really important to these 
critical wildlife species. Mm-hmm. I mean, wildlife doesn't know when they've crossed into a wilderness area or when they've changed game management unit or stuff like that. You know, it's all the same to them. And so there's been a big movement recently called the 30 by 30 campaign movement to protect 30% of landscapes by 2030 in order to preserve the world's biodiversity. This is like a worldwide campaign. And that certainly plays a role in this discussion when we're with climate change, because we're seeing biodiversity get lower and lower as more species go extinct. So it's been this big push that there've been a lot of groups and a lot of world leaders and national leaders that have really embraced Um, but is even more of a reason why locally we need to be involved and engaged because it all adds up, you know, the areas that we can protect will hopefully add up to this 30% level limit. And it's not a limit, we should go above it, but we should at least hit it so that we have the biodiversity that we all rely on, really. You know, there are all these things called ecosystem services that do all sorts of things from creating the air we breathe to filtering water to um, providing places for for us to recreate that are all happening in nature without us and we can't take that for granted Mm -hmm. and we need to make sure that our biodiversity locally regionally nationally internationally continues to be okay so that all of those ecosystem services can continue to happen yeah this is a international worldwide thing you said (laughs) yeah okay yeah. I'll find the link and link it to this podcast so people can check that out. And so, yeah, talk to me about recreation and how climate change is affecting recreation. Have you seen any actual changes to the terrain or to some of the areas that you might have gone? Because I know WSCC, you have a very boots on the ground approach where you do these hikes and these guided trails and stuff like that. I think WSCC looks at recreation looks at areas of Colorado, you know, I moved from Denver. And so I remember what it was like trying to go to the ski mountain on a Saturday during ski season, like you were sitting in traffic, Mm -hmm. you know, like that. And that was the norm. I think we see recreation locally as a important piece of our local economy, and it can certainly add value. There's a way that we should be continuing to think about it sustainably. Um, and making sure that places aren't getting loved to death and that those recreation opportunities are continuing to be accessible to everyone. That has been really driven a lot of our sustainable recreation work. You know, we do a lot of stewardship. Two weekends ago, we took a group up into the West Elk Wilderness to do trail work. I think we're seeing probably more trees falling down on the trail, things like that. But we try at WSCC to get out And when we're advocating for places to be protected, we also want to make sure we've got a contingent going out and working on improving those places and stewarding those places because we think that's really important. It gives us a lot of support when we're advocating for new wilderness that can maybe add a management burden on the land managers. You know, we can take on some of that work. And of course, it's not all volunteer work that can be done there, but we try and do as much as we can and are always looking to grow that program. And so I think that it all kind of fits together where while we want to have areas, you know, Jumbo Mountain is a a good example, I should say, where like that's an area that there's a lot of recreation and 
anecdotally we've heard that there's uh, less big game species there and so we want to look at the broader landscape and say where are areas that the mule deer and the elk and the big game species that have kind of been displaced from this recreation are going while also making sure that those op recreation opportunities are available to people and i think that you know climate change certainly plays a role in all in this whole conversation and that's something that we continue to talk about with our members that we continue to advocate for is a sustain idea of sustainable recreation. What does that look like and how can we all play a role so that not only do you have a mountain bike trail that you can go ride your bike on, but that also the elk has a place so that it can have its babies and, and thrive. And, you know, there are different ways to manage an area to make all that work on Jumbo Mountain the travel management plan is being finalized right now. And a big portion of that area is actually going to be closed in the winter for big game species where like it's closed and that's for the wildlife because we know that they need that place during the winter, during these critical seasons. And then in the summer when they've got a lot more, a lot of the land is opened up, then we can open it up and then we can go, you know, hike and ride our mountain bikes. It's almost like we're going back to the way nature designed itself <laughs> a little trying, bit trying right? yeah i mean that's also one of the beauties of jumbo is that um you know at a certain point it gets to too muddy mm -hmm. or like you can't really do much on there anyway right. so um, yeah. it kind of yeah it kind of self-maintains itself but it's always good to have those policy backbones in there too to make sure that you know things happen when they should and we're, mm -hmm. we're not having more of an impact than we mean to yeah as far as public lands goes, what are some of the biggest obstacles to addressing climate action? A lot of the public lands work that I do is in this policy world where it's looking at landscapes and working to protect them. And then also like what policies are there in the land management plans or the Bureau of Land Management or the Forest Service following. So that's always an obstacle. I mean, it can get in the way but also it can be really helpful at times too. It's kind of a double-edged sword there. Policy. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we certainly advocate for, for good policy. So I think back to 2020, where the Bureau of Land Management had just finished this land management plan that opened the entire North Fork Valley to oil and gas development. And, you know, how that had a huge impact locally um, and, you know, would continue to do so. And that's why WSCC and others filed a lawsuit because we knew that that wasn't right for our local climate, that it wasn't right for all of our wilderness quality areas, for our, you know, for our wildlife. And so I look at like bad resource management plans or things like that that can really have an impact and hopefully you know our lawsuit was settled and we'll hopefully see a, a new amendment process here starting soon you know hopefully we can change that but if we don't that could have a big impact on on local climate mm -hmm. you kind of touched on this already but what is wscc doing to address climate change so we partner with organizations like Citizens for a Healthy Community, Wilderness Workshop, the Wilderness Society, Conservation Colorado, and we work to fight against oil and gas and unsustainable development in the, in the North Fork and across the Western Slope. We want to see 
our economy transitioned um, to a more sustainable economy that's not reliant on oil and gas and that boom and bust economy that's kind of associated with that, but that's not helping climate change is having more oil and gas. So we try to try and work with all these organizations who are all doing great work in their own spheres of climate and work to address these climate issues. One of the things that we're also doing as part of our stewardship program is we're starting to do some work with um, low-tech process-based restoration, which is, you know, has gotten a lot of hype locally around like introducing beavers or like what beavers can provide. The idea is that it slows water down from leaving our watershed and it's actually providing a cooling effect, but also keeping water here locally so it can be our water resources can be more resilient. And so we've got a whole host of advocacy and stewardship projects that all really at their core are in climate change. When I think of climate change, I, you know, I think more of maybe the symptoms like drought and temperature and less water. And I think of how do we kind of create our programs to address those symptoms that are more tangible locally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that word tangible because we were talking before the um, interview about there's probably already plenty of doomsday podcasts out there, and that's not mm. our mission for mm. this particular podcast. This this podcast, I'm hoping to bring listeners more ideas and opportunities to get involved in something that inspires them. Mm. Like, oh, I'd love to get involved with WSCC because I really love being in nature and I love the wildlife. And so maybe someone will feel inspired to join your organization, sign up for one of your hiking trips or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Well, I would hope your listeners would go to our website and get involved. We've got an advocate email listserv that sends out action alerts and other information to people to show them how they can get involved. I mean, we've got a lot of things that are happening. I think the, you know, from a public lands perspective, especially here in the North Fork and Delta County, making sure that your voice is heard in a number of ways, writing a comment, even if it's a paragraph or a sentence to whatever project that's happening, if that's a oil and gas development or a land management plan or a new trail being built, you know, I think it's really important to have people have their voices heard and then also getting in touch with your county commissioners, making sure that they hear from the people locally, that they care about climate, that they want to see a climate action plan and other things implemented so that we're not behind the eight ball locally and, you know, writing letters to the editor, um, other things that kind of raise the awareness of what's happening, I think are all really important from a public lands perspective, because sometimes it feels like it's an uphill battle that our public lands are there and that we should see what we can pull out of them and make money from. And they're really there for us to enjoy. And we need to make sure that they remain enjoyable for future generations. And from my perspective, the only way to do that is to protect them. And if you go hiking up at Lost Lake and enjoy that landscape that you can give um, the people who come after you the same experience. We just heard from Ben Katz, Public Lands Program Director for the Western Slope Conservation Center, a nonprofit organization based in the North Fork Valley. If you're interested in learning more about WSCC, you can check out their website, westernslopeconservation.org. And to learn more about the 30 by 30 movement that Ben mentioned, visit wilderness.org. You've been listening to Crisis to Comeback, your Western Colorado climate action podcast, produced and hosted by me, Corey Stanton, and occasionally co-hosted by Alan Harvey. 
Crisis to Comeback is a local and regional weekly short-form podcast that explores the impacts of climate change and the state of warming in Delta County and Western Colorado, and local climate actions taken by individual citizens, businesses, and government. Get informed, inspired, and empowered by listening to these short episodes and become a part of the solution to addressing our rapidly changing local climate. This podcast was made possible in part by the West Elk Community Fund and Citizens for a Healthy Community. If you have questions, comments, or want to learn more about this podcast, please reach out to us by emailing crisis to come back at chc the number four you.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>